Good evening, everybody, and welcome to tonight's session of Chat with the Designers, your live, online, interactive weekly magazine for homebrewers, QRPers, experimenters, and ham radio ops across the Fruited Plains. This is your host, George N2APB, with co-host Joe N2CX, and tonight we have a wonderful session planned to be discussing troubleshooting techniques. On the surface, you might say, okay, we've heard this before, I know all there is to know, but over the many weeks that we've been uh, conducting this program, we've been talking about different kinds of circuit components, circuit topologies, and different kinds of projects, and once in a while, we encounter a project that you put together where you had a, a circuit board full of uh, parts, you know, a kit that you're assembling or some scathingly brilliant idea that you have for a new circuit. And you put all the components together and check it against the schematic and whatnot. You apply power and lo and behold, you get a big puff of smoke or, you know, it just doesn't work. So, you know, what do you do? Well, after pulling your hair out, maybe going to get up uh, a little drink of fruit juice upstairs or whatever to kind of calm the nerves, you got to settle in and say, oh my gosh, what? where do I begin? There are very few circuits that I can remember putting together that worked the first time. Sometimes the problem is a, an obvious one that I overlooked. Sometimes it's an insidious little one. Sometimes it's a component that's marked wrong. And I didn't notice it or didn't bother checking it. But oftentimes I have to, even I and Joe have to go back and look over to find out why the darn thing isn't working. So we figured that tonight we'd, we'd kind of approach things and in our usual logical manner of overviewing within the next hour or so and discuss some of the techniques that Joe and I and uh, JJ, uh, Joe Jessen, KC2VGL, is going to play an active role here tonight with us as well. And uh, we thought that we would share with you all the uh, some of our techniques and approach for logically approaching a given circuit. And uh, we're going to take a lot of breaks. We're going to take a lot of pauses to allow uh, you guys to kind of add your your favorite uh, approaches for finding a, a problem or determining where a problem might be in the circuit. And by the end of the hour, we'll have a good accumulation of techniques such that if you're not as handy with soldering iron as you'd like to be, or if you're not as uh, deft in running around the uh, the circuit, and figuring out where, what the signal should be and where to probe and look around, um, you know, you'll get some ideas uh, here. Let's see, Joe, do you want to maybe kick us off here? And people often get the, the terms troubleshooting and debugging kind of mixed up. And I thought that maybe that would be a good place to start real quick. Sure, just give a quick hint on that. Uh, as you may know, I I tend to be a little bit of a, a, little bit of a bug bugbear on the terminology. Properly speaking, troubleshooting is uh, working on a circuit that um, it's a known design, something that is uh, known to work. And for whatever reason, when you first put it together or perhaps it's been working for a while, uh, it doesn't work anymore. Uh, debugging, on the other hand, is uh, when you're, you're designing something for the first time and uh, the design is not proven or you're trying something a little bit out of the ordinary design is not proving proven so that there's no 100% guarantee that it works. So a little bit of different philosophy in, in attacking it there. Um, if you're troubleshooting with something that uh, is a known quantity, known to work, it's a little bit easier than debugging where uh, you have to open the brain up a little bit more to uh, try to uh, consider other possibilities and a bad component or, or whatever. 
So just just a little extra philosophy. By the way, uh, you may or may not know, debugging came from uh, Grace Hopper, who uh, worked for the Navy. She was the uh, inventor of Fortran. She and some of her uh, folks in the naval in the Navy were uh, working on a computer system that stopped working, and they actually found a moth in a relay was jamming it, and uh, they took the moth out of the relay, uh, taped it in her log, and said they found the bug in the circuit. Okay, and uh, I'd much rather be troubleshooting a known quantity, a known a circuit that's known to be working, and that's uh, that's kind of what we're going to do at uh, here tonight. And by the way, what we're uh, what we're going to do tonight, I didn't finish the uh, the approach. We're going to go through some of the basic kind of just chatting about so the, the approach and the style and general techniques that can be applied to any project. But then real quick, like, uh, well, within the next 15 to 20 minutes, we're going to get into a circuit called the Ensemble Receiver 2, the um, Ensemble RX2. It's a soft rock. It's a three band soft rock receiver board that's quite popular these days. And once again, by the way, these are again for sale and you can get them I think um, a lot more readily than in the past. Tony Parks, KB9YIG, has uh, teamed up with some others to get in some help, and there's a website that's listed at the bottom of our web page of our whiteboard. And um, um, I forgot the name of the um, the name of the web of their website, but it's there, and you can go and you can order it. And uh, maybe if it comes a lot, uh, if if you get confirmation and such, it'll come a lot faster than. And a lot easier than it had been to purchase some of the soft rocks in the past. And by the way, I would encourage you to get that uh, get that project with uh, the soft rock uh, ensemble receiver was a subject of a New Jersey QRP club project. Oh gosh, Joe, what was it? Uh, a year and a half ago? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, we held a we held a couple of sessions over at the New Jersey Technical Institute or Institute of Technology, and uh, we used the lab that. Al Katz, the famous uh, Al Katz of the VHF world and the ham world, a class that he runs and a lab that he runs, and he let us use it. And we had a bunch of, Q, uh, of New Jersey QRPers put together these uh, kits. A good percentage of them were built and working. <laughs> a good hand, uh, a handful of them are still trying to be, we're trying to get them working. Joe and I thought it would be a really good uh, kind of a case exercise uh, to go through that circuit because it sort of represents like the cumulative or the summation of our component studies and our, our circuit topologies and whether it's toroids or amplifiers and that we've been talking over the last two, three months about and then go through that. So we'll talk first about the general techniques and we're going to slide into talking about the soft rock uh, ensemble receiver and kind of go through the troubleshooting approach using what we just talked about here in the first part of the session. Well, let's see. Tools. Remember the tools. If you're following along on the whiteboard, that's the best place to uh, uh, that's the best place to kind of look at things. And I see that Terry WB4JFI is uh, right in the middle of building an ensemble. So I think Terry, if you want to hop in here, sometimes with your with your experience and maybe what you found useful right real recently, that'll be that'll be helpful too. From a tools perspective, Joe, I think or JJ actually. You know, you see the uh, the standard tools on a homebrew or bench, uh, needle nose pliers, side cutters. Um, I love to have uh, 0.015 inch solder, the real thin stuff. 
um, as well as the uh, the thicker stuff. I forgot what the dimension of the thicker normal solder is, but I like to have the thin stuff handy because that's good for a lot of the ICs that we deal with, surface mount ICs. Of course, a good soldering iron. Um, I have a hot air, a combined hot air and uh, solder station. That's the hot air part is good for removing a part that is suspected as being bad. My eyes are going bad like everybody else's about now, and magnified visors and good lighting and uh, um, a good uh, good glass of water on the side is quite helpful. So, JJ, what do you think about the tools? Do you have anything else on your bench that you find uh, useful besides what I listed? Well, you know, I, the scope to me is, uh, is a big deal because, uh, as we were talking about earlier, I really want to see what the power supply looks like. Uh, a lot of things, if there's uh, one one diode in a in a uh, bridge that's out, for example, I'll see that real quick with a scope, and I, I cannot see it with a VOM. Um, and, of course, I have a spectrum anal really antique once in a while. But um, uh, other, other tools that we learned at, um, at the College of New Jersey was uh, a camera, if you're looking at windings, you know, to be able to count the turns, because I, I always got messed up when I'm, eyeballing the turns on the toroids. Uh, I just can't get it right. And I'm nearsighted, so I don't know what most guys do. Um, but the, anyhow, that would be my uh, top uh, top choices. Excellent point about the uh, about that. And uh, we're going to get to the scope and some of the other equipment. And I just was just touching on some of the tools at first, but great, great point that we hadn't noted down here about the, uh, you know, using a camera or some type of a video to a video device to blow up on perhaps onto a monitor an image such that you can count the turns, see a close-up of a solder junction or whatnot. Rick, did you have a, a question? Solder braid. Uh, solder braid. Definitely. Solder wick is a commercial brand of that. You can get it from uh, uh, Mike uh, or a uh, Mauser. And I would imagine DK Digikey as well, but absolutely essential there. And I use it very, very often. So that's a, it's a good uh, good thing to have around. Joe, how about yourself? You know, it's not a tool, but, well, I, w I will mention a tool. Something like a third hand or, or something to hold a uh, hold a circuit board uh, to elevate it in the air so that um, you can probe on the circuit top and bottom. And in conjunction with that, one of the tricks that uh, John Cawthorn showed us at, um, um, what do you call it, at uh, the College of New Jersey, was to put standoffs, long standoffs, on both sides of a PC board so that it'll elevate it above the, uh, the work surface so that you can then flip it over and have the thing elevated above the work surface to, uh, to do probing as you're troubleshooting. Great point. And actually, if those of you who might remember the, uh, the retro SWR meter that we had uh, a number of weeks ago as our featured project, that had four standoffs. We just finished uh, kitting up the retro SWR meter, and one of the things I was going to mention at the end of the program, but it's appropriate now, is that you know we've got a limited supply of these parts kits. And right after the show, I'll activate the links such that uh, those who are interested can get the parts kits pretty much at uh, at cost or so. And um, included in each are four standoffs that go into each of the corners of the printed circuit of the copper clad that's supplied and you drill a hole but the idea is that it acts as a good standoff while you're building 
and actually while you're troubleshooting too. All right, let's go on to the uh, another. Um, I'll make this as brief as possible. I can't speak more highly of uh, for those of you who are approaching 70 years as I am, um, currently with a, a cataract in my eye. Uh, I can't speak more highly than to get a um, fairly, you can get a fairly cheap but um, highly effective stereo microscope. Um, I hesitated before I bought mine and after buying mine, I, I'm, I'm just so grateful for the um, extra magnification and the, uh, the depth of feel that a stereo mic um, affords. Uh, of course, with my cataract, I, I can only use one eye currently, so I'm waiting until the other one's done. Um, I started uh, to use it on the uh, soft rock um, uh, Ensemble RX2, and boy, what a difference. You know, it was like night and day. For those of you who have trouble uh, seeing with uh, magnifying glasses and loops and that sort of thing, um, it's, it's a good decision. So uh, if your eyes are a bit funny, don't hesitate. Oh, good point. And, and good luck with your, uh, with your eyes there, John. And um, I also have a stereo microscope. It was given to me by a very good friend. And... Uh, it, it's become invaluable on my bench. I've replaced the lamp a couple of times because I use it so often. And it's in amongst the mess. If you look at back in any of our photos of the bench ball in progress, work in progress, you'll see it. But it's really handy, especially for looking at uh, junctions of ICs, surface mount ICs. We'll get into that particular aspect when it comes time for talking about the, the soft rock ensemble board. So, um, Let's get into the information section, because I think this is something that we often forget. Um, something that I do, a little technique that I follow, is when I'm sitting down to do a project, I mean, I don't, uh, you know, supposing I get a kit. I order a kit from from uh, Kits and Parts or, or Hendrix or Four State uh, QRP or any of the good uh, good places, and, you know, you, you lay out the, the parts, you just kind of sort through them and you count them up and all of that, make sure you have everything then, and you dive in, right? Well, a technique that I found has been absolutely essential in making circuits the right the first time is to collect all of the information about that beforehand and have it on, on, uh, on the bench just at the same time. For example, I print out the schematics. Oftentimes, you've got to go to the website these days just to get the information. Uh, but I print out the schematics. I print out the instructions, or at least if it's a huge PDF, uh, like sometimes it is, and, and actually the soft rock is, uh, it's very much an online type of uh, reference material thing. I have the computer or another computer or the iPad or something set up off to the side, protected from the solder, but uh, still um, uh, easy easy reference for me right then and there. The theory of operation, I collect errata, make sure that I've got all of the latest changes and updates and parts and circuit board cuts and ads. And then I also make an effort to check before I start building a circuit, I go to the different user groups, whether it's Yahoo or something else that's dedicated for the project, and I kind of scan through and look for other people's comments. Oftentimes, after a kit is introduced, there are uh, no suggestions for improvement. Uh, hey, if you do this before you do that, you'll have a lot better chance of adjusting the trim pot or something. And uh, by collecting all that information, kind of getting smart, quote-unquote, about 
about the project, it arms me better for actually getting into and, and um, assembling it all together. Uh, Joe, do you have any other uh, information that you kind of collect along the way before that, um, kind of along like this before we get into the project? Yeah, two things I do are um, I leave the manual pristine, but I photocopy pages out of the manual, particularly the um, um, the schematic and any assembly drawings so that I can mark them up, check off what I've done as I do it, uh, and not muck up the manual. And it's also handy to have it available as you're building so you don't have to flip back and forth. One of the other things I have to um, have to tout is I can't remember the guy's call. It's a WB5 who uh, has a, a um, page with a lot more information on the soft rock stuff uh, where he goes into a great detail in uh, describing uh, how to build the soft rock stuff and has extra information on building in um, uh, building the soft rock uh, material in sections and checking as you go along to be sure you do it right. That little bit of extra info is uh, is a great help. Oh, you're absolutely right. This WB5 RV, oh, shucks, is Robbie. His, uh, his, his website's down at the bottom um, of our reference page, and actually we reference right into that Soft Rock Ensemble page, and he has just an outstanding collection of guidance and step-by-step -step parts identification, build, section by section, test section by section. We're going to talk about some of those techniques as we get into the circuit. But that's a great point, Joe. I really like the, the one about um, printing off the manual pages that you're going to be working with and not mark up the original. Um, just as an aside, I mean, pretend, for example, if you're going to sell sell off or give, give away your kit, uh, assembled kit, uh, later on, it's uh, sometimes a nice touch to have the original manual that is unmarked and, you know, it, it just adds to the value of that kit to whom, you know, for whom that you're, you know, giving it to somebody. Uh, JJ, any comments on uh, information? You're, you're kind of a master of information of yourself. You dig up, you dig up uh, technical info from places that I, I normally don't check. Any ideas uh, along these lines here? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I really do a lot of advanced uh, Google searches where I actually specify the file types that I'm looking for manually. You know, for example, if there's uh, some hardware I'm working on, right, uh, what I, I won't just type in the name of the model or the model number. I'll type in the name, model number, and I'll do a file and specify PDF so I know I'm going to get the real deal or at least very little clutter. You know, I'm going to get a PDF file. And it might just be a brochure, but or it might be the full service manual, but uh, that's one of the tricks I do. The other one is I I uh, know several manual uh, suppliers, and I'll cite that as references on, on this that I always call, and they they usually have manuals on that of stuff I'm looking for. Uh, but they're two of the tricks that I use all the time. Okay, well let's move right along. The last uh, topic before we actually get into. Um, the troubleshooting techniques and the approach is equipment. Now, of course, you're going to need the equipment that the circuit is supposed to work with. That's the only way that you're oftentimes going to be able to check it out, at least at the system level. Um, for example, if you're, uh, we're talking about the soft rock here, so you're going to need an antenna or some type of a signal that you're going to squirt into the antenna. 
Uh, you're going to need a power supply to power the uh, to power the circuit. You're going to need um, a computer and a computer sound card, which in itself is quite a uh, a battle if you've never really tackled that octopus before. But these are the kinds of mating equipment that uh, that you need in order to test out a circuit because you need to see how the circuit's going to be performing in its native environment or as it is supposed to work. Other things that come along the line, JJ mentioned already the scope, and I would agree with him. Probably the scope is the most ubiquitous and um, ubiquitous value uh, type of equipment because it shows you visually so much more than just a DVM uh, or even a DVM with an RF probe. But the DVM and the RF probe and a signal source and maybe a speaker, even if your project doesn't use a speaker, um, a speaker can be useful. We'll talk about the, that as we get into it. But that's the kind of equipment that I find to have useful there on the bench. It doesn't have to be overly extravagant. Sure, you can have a spectrum analyzer and you can have a super nifty-difty signal source like you know Joe and I have been talking about quite often with our 8640Bs. In fact, we just talked about that last week, the value of having a good signal source. But uh, there's a minimum amount of Equipment that's helpful when uh, building up a project, especially such as the uh, the ensemble. Joe, um, other kinds of equipment that uh, we haven't talked about. One of the things I like to do is cheat a little bit and beg, borrow, or steal another copy of uh, what you're trying to debug um, or troubleshoot. I should say troubleshoot. Um, it's often handy to have a working model of uh, what you're working on so that you can do an A-B comparison. Which, uh, which does quite well. I also want to mention another piece of test equipment that's often overlooked. Um, I saw it first uh, described in um, working on a uh, British kit, so British transceiver, and um, the, the designer of the kit very cleverly said that you can use your finger a lot of times for troubleshooting. If you're looking at an audio circuit, if you just touch the circuit, if it's high-gain amplifier, you get clicks or AC hum or whatever, and uh, you can tell whether or not you're getting any, any uh, audio through. And even in RF circuits, if, um, if you have strong local uh, AM signals nearby, if you stick your finger in the circuit where there's a lot of gain and perhaps a detector, sometimes you can get um, uh, an unregulated signal, but at least some sort of RF signal injected in the circuit uh, to act as a four-man signal generator for uh, troubleshooting. What a great idea. And that's absolutely true. In fact, that, that normally happens with me without even knowing it. So I'm, I'm, I've got my paws all over the circuit trying to, you know, if you flip it over, you shake it, you know, you um, don't laugh, but I, I bring my lips down really close to the uh, to the chips because my lips or finger, my non-calloused fingertips from the guitar playing um, are very sensitive to heat. So if something's extra heat is coming from it, I can sense it pretty easily that way. But um, uh, during the process, you might touch a, a high impedance input and introduce some uh, noise and hum, and that's kind of useful too along the way to see that something is active or maybe inactive. Anybody else have some ideas for equipment, uh, the favorite pieces of equipment that you like to have on the bench while putting together a kit? Quick question, Nate. Am I, am I on uh, George over? Yeah, you're coming through loud and clear now, Nick. Okay, good. I had to change that uh, PTT to 
control button instead of a shift while I'm typing. I, you will use the shift. Uh, is there a, a white page that you guys could go ahead and post for me, please? Thank you. Yeah. Well, I'm. Uh, well, first of all, make sure that you click on the QRP Homebrewing tab at the bottom of your Windows client. That's down at the very bottom of the, the client. That'll make you be able to see everything that uh, that's showing. And Joe just posted the link to the whiteboard. You can also get a link to the whiteboard on the Chat with the Designer homepage, that I, the advertisement that I send around, uh, or the invite, uh, if, if you will, or the announcement, as well as uh, on the New Jersey QRP page, there's a link to the TeamSpeak uh, Chat with the Designers session, and then listed right there at the top of uh, is, uh, is a link that will take you to where we are. Okay, so let's... Uh, Joe, I'm going to turn it over to you maybe and drive a little bit. I think a really good place to hop in, we talked a lot about this in the past, divide and conquer. It's kind of a philo philosophical approach that you can, that one can follow in order to, to kind of, kind of know where to start probing. And, and I think that'll lead us into a lot of different uh, areas that, that we can get into here. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, uh, indeed. That is a, uh, it is a good philosophy for troubleshooting, where to get your head around things. The um, uh, someone got a question. The idea is that um, when you look at at what uh, what's working and what's not working, you want to divide it into um, two categories, and then successively divide the rest of the circuit into uh, uh, subcategories. For example, if if the um, radio or the circuit, whatever. It's totally dead if it doesn't do anything. First thing you want to do is to see if it's got power. Is it plugged in? Does it have power applied? Uh, is it the right voltage applied? And uh, you can also measure the input current to see whether or not the power is right. And concentrate on that first to be sure that that's right. And then that's something you can forget about after that once you know that it's right. Or if you see a, a problem with the power, then you can concentrate on the power circuitry and know what's going on. After that, you want to um, you try to see what else does and doesn't work and concentrate, obviously, on what doesn't work. If you have a receiver, for example, um, first thing, if you have power and uh, nothing's working, you want to try to concentrate on uh, what you can get working. So you would, uh, rather than going to the antenna, uh, where you have to go through the whole rest of the circuit to, um, to check everything, you start at the audio amplifier, um, the audio circuitry, see if that's working. And um, then once you're assured that that's working properly, then you go to the rest of the circuitry a little bit at a time so that you can divide the whole, um, the whole project you're looking at into two categories, what does and what doesn't work. And obviously, once you've determined what does work, you can ignore that and uh, go ahead and look at, uh, look at the rest to uh, try to uh, do the, the binary split to uh, lessen your workload. Um, so that, that's generally what the, uh, the, the divide and conquer uh, philosophy is. That's good. I like that. Uh, and, and I think many of us, you probably practice it by default uh, without even knowing it. And a lot of it is common sense. But sometimes when the problems get really tough, you want to ask yourself at what point along the signal chain, for example, from the very input of a microphone to, let's just talk about from like an amplifier, an audio amplifier, 
from speaker to amplifier, I'm sorry, from microphone to amplifier to speaker. And you might say, hmm, I'm not getting anything. So where's kind of like the first thing that you would check? Well, it might be um, at, the, uh, at the microphone input to the amplifier. If you have a, a way to, you know, like a scope that you can crank up in sensitivity, uh, in, in voltage sensitivity, you can see if when you're uh, tapping on the microphone or going, you know, the typical hello, see if you're getting a signal out of that uh, going into the amplifier. If you do, then, uh, you know, the problem's probably with uh, the amplifier itself or the connection to the speaker. So here's a chance where you can kind of look on the output of the amplifier, maybe scratch or, or um, inject a signal after you disconnect it, but test the speaker separately. And if the speaker's working and the connections are good, then the chances are the problem's in the middle with the amplifier. And then you take that, that module, that amplifier module, uh, assuming that it's discrete components, and you start digging into it. And you say, okay, if I know the signal going in is okay, and the signal coming out is, is not, and, and then the problem, let's see if it's um, present, if the signal is present halfway through. So you maybe pick the, the second stage if there are four, and see if there's a signal level when you're modulating the microphone. If there's no signal there, then, hmm, then you start looking further up front, and maybe in the first stage of the amplifier, and as Joe said, check the basics. Look for to see if you have power. Make sure that the power supply is turned on. Make sure that it's uh, supplying the right kind of current. If you don't have a, a power supply that displays the current being supplied, which is a really handy thing to have, by the way, spend the, uh, oh, I don't know, 50, 60 bucks and get yourself a good adjustable power supply that has not only a voltage meter, but a current meter on it. And then while you're at it, the nice power supply to get is one that actually has current limiting capabilities. Make sure you're able to supply the circuit with enough current. So, um, yeah, do some of the basic checks on it. Um, what we're going to do, given the time, we want to make sure that we move along and do proper diligence to the, uh, to the circuits. We're going to apply these techniques. We're not going to go through every single the one, single one of them listed here on the page, and we'll augment uh, the page after the uh, after the presentation, much as we did last time. Hopefully, you noted and looked at the the whiteboard from last week and saw that we had a boatload of additional information. And these are the notes that Joe and I and JJ work from each week. We don't put it all up there because it's you know you can sit and read it at your leisure, but uh, it's probably more informative to kind of talk through it. But after the presentation. We normally augment the page with a lot of additional information that we work with, and uh, it becomes a good reference that way for later use. We hope you find the value in that, too. So we'll do the same here. Let's get into the schematic, and, um, uh, and I'm, and I'm, I'm going to dial down to the schematic here. Actually, I'm going to dial down to the circuit board first. I have pictures there on the whiteboard that are showing the case example of the Soft Rock Ensemble 2 receiver. Or maybe it's a Softark Ensemble RX2. I'm not sure. But you'll see the top side of the of the board and the bottom side of the board is uh, devilishly looking. It looks devilishly simple, and it is sort of is when you look at it and, and you approach it in a block diagram sense. But there's some subtleties in there that are are, are overlooked if you if you're not familiar with the circuit, and you can really scratch your head for a long time. When uh, 
when trying to probe around there, uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll touch on that in, in a moment. But in general, the circuit is a, uh, as shown in the diagrams, it's a little tough to see the diagrams, and I really defer to the overall theory of operation. Now, there's a link there that goes over to Robbie's page, and it's a good page-long worth of, uh, of um, description of how the signals go through the system and, and so on. But the bottom line is that you've... Uh, um, the antenna signal comes in, it gets mixed uh, in a local oscillator, um, in, a, in a mixer that is um, supplied signals um, by a uh, local oscillator, um, an SI570 chip, some of us know that, and uh, it brings the, it's a direct conversion such that it knocks the antenna signal and the band that you're listening on down to audio. And then it takes the um, audio, it amplifies it in a very mm, controllable way, a phase-controlled way, to produce, um, to, to amplify the I and the Q, the quadrature-related channels, and presents those to the sound card. Um, along the way, too, and I didn't mention it, of course, is the... Uh, is the bandpass filter, which is kind of an important uh, um, part of the circuit. So in this, on the second schematic, on the lower schematic, you see the antenna coming in on the left-hand side at uh, circle number one. There's a transformer that we circled. The antenna comes in, and it goes to a MUX, a multiplexer that, depending on the channel, on the frequency that's uh, being, uh, that your LO, your local oscillator, is running at, it... Uh, switches that antenna signal through an appropriate uh, filter, and that's shown in um, red circle number three. And red circle number four is the, is is the complement of the MUX, and it takes the signal and it routes it down through its outputs on the right side of that uh, chip U9. And then it routes it over to bubble number five, which is an, a transformer, and that's where the actual mixing happens in bubble number six. That's the special commutating switch mixer uh, in bubble number six that takes the LO in from page one, and it mixes it with the signal coming in there, at, you know, from transformer at bubble number five. And the output of that mixer of bubble number six goes to the amplifiers in bubble seven, and then that goes over to your sound card. So. Um, that's kind of the signal flow. It's easy to talk about, but what we thought we'd do is sort of like pre pretend that we've got a circuit board that is sitting on your bench. I can't tell you how many times this has happened exactly like I'm describing, and it doesn't work. You're squirting a signal in, you've got to connect it up to your computer, you think things are being controlled right, but there isn't anything coming out of the computer sound card uh, that sounds like the the, the band that you're trying to listen to. So where do you begin? So, uh, Joe, maybe on the, on the first schematic up above, you want to uh, take us through some of that divide and conquer and maybe take us from the power um, and up to the, uh, the clock, the signal, uh, the SI-570 clock in bubble number four. And uh, I've got a couple of points that I want to add at that point, but you can lead us off. Alrighty, thank you. Yeah, yeah. The very first thing you want to do is to verify that uh, 
indeed you have uh, power and that um, the proper voltages appear in the circuit. There's an input power jack, a coaxial power jack, where you put uh, 12 volts in, plus 12 volts. And the very first thing is to measure with a, uh, a meter to verify that indeed you have about 12 volts and it's applied with the correct polarity. Um, this is a good circuit in that it has a, a blocking diode so that um, if, the, if you put negative polarity in, it'll block it and not blow up the circuits. So if you put that diode in properly, uh, it keeps you from uh, destroying the rest of the circuit. I call it an anatomical diode because it prevents people who have uh, certain nether region problems from, uh, from zapping circuits. Hey, Joe. And then that's followed by uh, – go ahead, George. What are the symptoms if the diode's in backwards? Voltage is on either side. Yeah, good point. If the diode happens to be in backwards, um, you'll have uh, the proper voltage on the input connector. You can probe that. But then if you look at the, um, the output of the diode, uh, you'll see no voltage uh, because the whole idea of the diode is to allow voltage with the proper uh, polarity to, uh, to pass through. So if you have a backwards voltage with a proper polarity, won't make it through. Good point, George. Um, then there are, it's followed by a 5-volt regulator, a 78L05 uh, regulator, uh, which has three leads on it. And uh, indeed, you could have put the leads in uh, improperly or not soldered something. So you want to look at the input pin of the, of the uh, regulator to be sure that the voltage is getting to it. Um, verify it again that that's about 12 volts. And then look at the output. If the output is not 5 volts, um, then you've got a problem somewhere. If it's higher than 5 volts, you have either a, uh, a blown-out rectifier, a blown-out regulator, possibly one that was uh, installed improperly. Um, and it's easy to mix up those three legs and get it, uh, get it installed improperly. So you have to, uh, you have to be sure that um, it is indeed installed correctly until you have 5 volts coming out. If the voltage is just a little below 5 volts, if it's within 5 or 10%, probably not a problem. Um, if it's much less than 5 volts, uh, could indeed be you have a short circuit in this, in the, uh, somewhere in the power uh, distribution traces on the board. So you want to then go through with, a, uh, with an ohmmeter and check for dead shorts, do a very good visual inspection of the board, to see that uh, you you have not uh, shorted inadvertently shorted one of the traces to ground, and to check all of the integrated circuits uh, very carefully to be sure that they're installed in, they're installed properly, because if they're installed uh, incorrectly, they can load down the um, the five volts and uh, give you problems. That tends to be fairly time consuming until you've got everything worked out there and you've got the right uh, Got the right voltage. Um, there's another regulator, a 3.3 volt regulator, and you follow the same process there. You want to be sure that you have 5 volts going into that and 3.3 volts going out. And if you don't have uh, the 3.3 coming out, then you have to look at the circuitry downstream. Go ahead, George. Yeah, um, uh, Paul mentions in the text 
that uh, that probing the the um, the actual pin of the IC is is at times not always but at times a better practice than probing at the pad the soldered pad onto the circuit board because at times you'll have either a bad uh, connection or um, a lifted pad um, of a lifted a, a lifted lead of the IC. In other words, the, the IC lead is hovering over what you think is the soldered pad is not even touching now. But a challenge with some of these small chips, just as an FYI, and especially that three volt, the 3.3 volt uh, um, uh, chip, the uh, regulator chip, the pad, uh, the leads are so closely spaced that if you happen to slip off a lead, there's a really good chance that you can short adjacent uh, leads on the package and it could be disastrous. So just be really careful if you do that. It's easier on the larger SOIC and certainly on the dip parts. Um, but um, just be careful that sometimes, maybe looking at the leads at the soldering junctions from a different angle can better show with a microscope or a light advisor that uh, you've got a good connection. Good connection. Yeah, yeah excellent points. George, George has a lot of experience with this. Yeah, I was going to say that, uh, again, this problem of is the fact that there's no output from the regulator caused because of the short on the board or a problem with the regulator is a great uh, reason to build one section at a time. If you just build the uh, regulator section then and you don't get any output, it's pretty clear where the problem is. Excellent point, uh, Rick. Yeah, um, there are step-by-step -step directions in, in Robbie's stuff that uh, guide you through it so that uh, you you don't run into that problem. Very, very good uh, uh, progress to follow. You know, there's another technique, too, because oftentimes I see boards that are already built. Somebody's built a, um, a new PSK modem or um, an SDR cube, and they send it to me and say, it don't work. So, um, you know, it's a, I got to kind of approach it in the same manner as we're talking here. But, I, of course, all the parts are on the board. So a technique that I follow um, when just to be sure that the power supplies, the regulators are, are working well, is I very carefully wick off the solder from the output pin, in this case, pin five of that uh, regulator. And at the same time, then while it's short, on, when, it, when there's hardly any solder, I still, with the lead heated up and an exact, a very fine pointed exacto blade, I pry up the lead, the output lead of that regulator, so as to isolate its output from anything else. And then in that way, if I power the circuit up, then I'm able to see just by probing that lifted lead if the 3.3 volts is present. Many times it is, and of course then I need to find out what along the 3 volt bus is uh, pulling it down. But right then and there, I've divided and conquered uh, the, uh, the non-working 3 volt bus just by t making sure that the, the regulator is known to be working. And I can do a similar technique by um, just following the other feeds of the 3.3 volt bus. Excellent points. One, one other thing I meant to mention, uh, I should have mentioned, is you can often use the, uh, your finger to tell if there's a, um, a short circuit, even if you have the right voltages. You want to touch the regulators and see if they get hot. If they get red hot, shut down the power supply. You've got to short somewhere. So how about that uh, SI570 chip, Joe? That's, uh, that's kind of a, that's an expensive thing. That's like 20 bucks. 
And I'm, I, I, when I'm handling these things, I want to make sure that I'm handling it very carefully, static sensitive, uh, or de discharged. And um, I, I just do an extra careful job of soldering that thing on. Um, if you suspect it's not working, well, how do you know if it's working or not? That's always a good challenge. If you have a good oscilloscope, you can probe it and look at the uh, the waveforms coming out. Of course, you have to look at the um, the clock going in in the first place, um, and you want to look at the uh, programming signals that uh, come from the uh, computer uh, to see that those lines wiggle and indeed that they're uh, they're moving, and look at the um, uh, the outputs to see that you have outputs on both with clocks, even if you don't have a very high-frequency oscilloscope, if you see those signal leads moving, it's an indication that it's good. And uh, the level zero test is uh, you program it for a certain frequency, and um, actually what you get out is a, a harmonic of that, depending on the, uh, the band you're on and, and what you've selected. But you listen for the signal in a uh, nearby shortwave receiver to, uh, to see if you can hear anything. Uh, that's close to that frequency. If you have a, a wire near that, laying near that, um, and you tune across the approximate frequency you want, if it's oscillating, if it's producing a good output signal, uh, you'll hear the signal. If not, uh, you've got to go in and probe with a scope or a spectrum analyzer. Yep. And here's an example of where studying the circuit a little bit in advance is going to provide you a lot of information that it's helpful when it comes time for debugging. For example, the um, well, uh, the SI570 chip by itself, all alone, um, even if the board is powered up, but if there is nothing plugged into the board, no cables coming from your computer, that chip is not, um, I, it is not going, I don't believe, it's going to be um, clocking, or it might be clocking at a default Stand, um, constant uh, frequency that is default for that chip. Uh, Joe said the magic words there that the SDA and the SCL um, lines you are going to be wiggling. Um, those are the control lines coming from the microcontroller, which is in bubble number five, U1, which is the AT Tiny 05, M85, I guess, A85. And um, that is what controls the uh, the programs that that signal generator, the SI570 in bubble number four. So the whole idea is that your USB cable off to the left-hand side of that schematic needs to be plugged in and connected to your computer. And your computer, and we won't even have time to get into this tonight. We'll we'll, we'll approach this another another night. But your computer has to have the driver for this uh, um, for the SI570. And it has to have the software set up properly such that when you change the cursor on the spectrum display of Rocky or WinHD or SDH, uh, HDSDR, these are different software programs running on your PC. And when you change the cursor position or change the frequency dial on the display, that sends a signal down to the board. And the AT, um, the um, the AT Tiny chip is what really is the USB controller. It interprets that signal coming from your computer, 
and it commands the frequency to change in the bubble number four, the SI570. So the frequency is not going to change all on its own. You need to have the computer connected up, and you need to have that uh, that ATtiny85 plugged in. That's the USB controller, because if you don't have USB control to the board, then you're not going to be able to uh, uh, to see those uh, the chips uh, the signals change. So here is where a scope is almost essential, and if you're really if you're landlocked on getting the board operational, you need every visual inspections and DC levels are all proper, but it's still not working. I think you're going to have to find a uh, um, a scope in order to see what's wiggling and what's not. Right, Joe? Indeed. And uh, George has the luxury, uh, uh, or did when we were at um, uh, at the College of uh, New Jersey, of having a working one that uh, he could compare a working one with a non-working one so that, uh, you know, you can see what, what everything wants to look like when it's working right and compare that to one that's not uh, operating properly. Yeah, I just wanted to say I was going through that uh, last night. Um, the SI-570, 90% of the problems with the SI-570 is the SDA and SCL. And the real problem is you can't, probe the chip itself because the leads, most of the lead is down, the connection is down under the chip. So what you really need to do is you need to very, very carefully make sure you reflow the solder on the SDA and SCL uh, so that it gets on that little, the little tiny bit on the side of the chip without shorting the other two little tiny, uh, the adjacent um, things on the side of the chip. Uh, and you're only going to see wiggling on SDA and SCL if the uh, AT Tiny is actually changing the frequency. So um, it's true that you can watch that, but you have to be transmitting a, uh, you have to be sending a command from the Tiny to the SI570 and catch that with the scope. Otherwise, those, those signals aren't going to be moving. So again, 90% of the time is bad solder or a weak solder joint on one of those two chips. And the other thing, by the way, is on this that I just ran into on the ensemble, the coils are wired, are, are started differently. And I don't know if you want to get into that, but I mentioned last week in winding toroids where you start either going up through the hole or you start going down through the, down through the hole. And that depends on how the leads are on the coils. Well, I just found out at least two of the coils are opposite than the rest, so they don't sit on the board right. Oh, great points. Yeah, we're not going to re rehash that. Um, to understand what Terry's talking about, refer to last week's session on toroids, and we had a special note and discussion on that very topic. Uh, depending on how you wind the toroids, the um, uh, the toroid gets oriented differently in the holes in the uh, on the circuit board. So there's there's a good way to do it, and there's uh, not as good a way to do it as far as uh, actually mounting it in the board. Um, the uh, uh, there is a tool, there is a software tool called SDRCFG, or maybe it's CFGSDR, Config SDR. It's a tool that, it's a software tool that runs, uh, that just exercises the SI570 on your board. So in other words, you run this little program on your computer, and you can dial, you can change the VFO real conveniently, 
and then you can directly see the SDA and the SDCL lines wiggle and correspondingly you can see the output of the chip change in frequency. Um, note that of course uh, we didn't get into it too much, we won't have time tonight, but the frequency being generated is four times the desired frequency that you're on. So if you're if you're tuned if you want if you're tuned to 40 meters, you would expect to see a seven megahertz um, frequency. Well, the signal coming out of the SI570 is four times seven or 28 megahertz, and um, and that's the expected frequency. So it's always a 4x kind of thing for reasons that we'll get into um, in a little bit. Probably one of the last major items that we'll be able to talk about tonight on this circuit board is um, um, an incredible, um, it's mentioned amply in Robbie's documentation, but it's so easy to overlook it. The grounds, the grounds on the board, there are two separate grounds on the circuit board. One ground is for the digital, what I call the digital ground or the, um, the clock generation, the USB ground. And that's on, uh, the, that ground is situated on the left-hand side. If you're looking at the top of the board, it's the left-hand side, of course, where the controller and the SI570 clock generator and the voltage uh, uh, regulators are near the USB card, uh, the, near the USB connector. So the grounds, when you're measuring signals on the uh, the microcontroller in bubble five, now it's the U1 AT tiny, um, you know, you'll have your ground clip. Let's see, I've got it right here in front of me. You, you'll have your ground um, probe on the scope connected to um, a ground that's easily that's easily reachable um, there on the left-hand side. And if you look at the bottom, you can see this in the photo of the bottom side, the segmented ground plane, the, the ground underneath the SI570 is is quite separated. Now, that's okay, you know, it, it's perhaps an obvious and okay thing as you're measuring the um, the voltages the, on the regulators and the signals coming out of the SI570 clock generator. But as you move over and start working, you know, following or tracing through your signals onto the right-hand side, if your ground clip is still over on the left-hand side with the USB ground plane, you're not going to see anything. There are two components on this board, actually three, that isolate the signals, um, or they isolate the signals for the ground planes um, with respect to the ground planes. It's the bubble number six, which is transformer T1, and that actually takes the, the clock frequency output of the SI570 and isolate, uh, transfers it over to the right-hand side of the, of the board um, by means of that uh, isolation transformer. And also, there are two opto isolators um, in bubble number nine, as U4 and U5. Those opto isolators um, are taking really slow signals, um, DC signals coming out of the microcontroller, and they produce, uh, they transfer those signals over to the right hand side of the board, the filter select one and filter select two. And that's what controls the, mul uh, the muxes, the multiplexers that determine where, uh, which filter you switch into and out of, based again, of course, on what frequency that you're programming the, uh, the SI570 with. So the moral of the, the point of this story, and it's an important one, and I put two, uh, I put two uh, blue arrows on the schematic 
labeled 10A and 10B. There's a USB ground over on the left-hand side. The blue arrow 10B points to it. And there's a the other ground, uh, let me just call it the, uh, the signal ground or the RF ground over on the right-hand side, which is the blue arrow pointing to 10A. Those two, those two grounds are not connected. And it's um, a really important thing to keep in mind, of course, when you're finding a ground point for your, your scope probe or your negative lead on the DVM. And if you don't, uh, if you happen to grab the wrong one, and the, if you happen to put the lead on the wrong ground, you'll not see the right signal. And you'll say, oh my gosh, what's happened? Things are not right. Well, they might actually still be right. You're just not measuring it right. But that's a, that's a, a trick that uh, the designers followed in order to make sure that they kept the noisier um, digital ground on the left hand over by the USB separate from the more sensitive RF side on the right hand side. Uh, Joe, was that was that dutifully uh, uh, complicated enough to explain? No, that was a very good explanation, and I'm glad you pointed it out because I had forgotten that I fell into exactly that trap when I was trying to get my ensemble working in the first place. And as Terry mentioned, I had not had the, um, the solder right up to those two tabs for the uh, uh, the clock and the uh, control lead to the um, SI-570. And uh, I was probing on the wrong ground so that I couldn't see anything on the scope. Um, excellent point. Um, many times in very sensitive circuitry, you have to isolate analog and digital grounds, and uh, the soft rock ensemble board is a uh, is a case study in doing that properly. Hey JJ, are you in a good position to talk now, and can you maybe share just a little bit of your experience on on building up your uh, ensemble board? Oh hi George, is this better, or am I still banned from the audio perfectionists? No, you have been graduated. You get a you get a B plus now. Okay, great. That was uh, a homemade microphone that uh, was facing behind me. <laughs> Anyhow, um, I guess what um, I was what I was saying just briefly earlier about the information. I was uh, if you do a file type colon PDF, you eliminate a lot of the junk that's on the web, and you go right for the manuals or at least the detailed user user manual. Um, anyhow, so that's all I was point I was going to make earlier. As far as troubleshooting, yeah, what the the first thing I go for is power supply, and I again I look at it as a, on the scope just to make sure there's no uh, no problems and with the signaling, and then the disconnected from your channel. And then the next thing I look for is the um, clock on the microcomputer. I'll I'll hang up. Scope probe on that and make sure the clock is is clean, and then I, th at least that's that's where I always start is power, clock, you know you get the heart and the uh, mitochondria of the, of the board, and then start going down and start doing some signal tracing after the on thirdly, and um, that seems to do the trick. Oh, good points. Let me under, underscore your point about using a scope, and I think it's an excellent one in that uh, once again the scope really provides us the opportunity to see more than a, just a DC level that might show on, a, on your DVM. For example, going up to Joe's example when he started uh, 
explaining through uh, the powering the circuit up in the upper left-hand corner in bubble number one, you know, checking to see that you got your DC voltage. Um, if you're using a scope, you're able to actually see the quality a lot better of that uh, that that DC signal. And um, for example, if you might have a, a noisy you might have a noisy power supply where there's a lot of ha <clears throat> hash on the signal, and your DVM wouldn't show it, but there's an awful lot of garbage on your on your DC supply, your 12 volt supply to the board. Chances are that's going to propagate through in a manner that you don't want. So right there and then, unregulated, unregulated wall warts can do that. Absolutely, unregulated wall warts and um, um, a power supply that doesn't have or a battery that doesn't have the amount of juice or oomph. Now that'll show in your DVM because you'll see a drop when you plug it in and activate the circuits. You'll see your voltage, your, your battery terminal voltage drop. But um, still, seeing things like this with a scope is just very helpful. Same too on the output side of the regulators. Using your scope, you can see that you might have a clean, un, clean input, but on the output, there might be oscillation. And oscillation sometimes is caused by um, insufficient capacitance, filtering capacitance on the uh, on the output. And every time you see a, a voltage regulator anywhere, you see multiple. You usually see multiple capacitors, and they are there for a reason. Chances are it'll work temporarily without those caps, but in long term, better solution, of course, is to have all of the components there um, on, on, in a circuit that uh, that are intended. And then these caps indeed help keep the regulator or sometimes other chips that have uh, capacitors across nicely in, um, in stable operation. Joe, this reminds me of a story that you told me about one of your designer at work one, one year a while ago that uh, would take off components until it didn't work and then in order to optimize the cost. Oh, yeah, that's one of my favorites. I was working, uh, actually working for the company that made uh, Clegg radios, and we were in production with uh, with several VHF transceivers, and um, you know, we'd been in production for some time. They seemed to be working well. All of a sudden, the uh, the testers are uh, reporting back to engineering that uh, the darn things are not working properly, that the uh, they're getting all sorts of spurious outputs on the transmitters. And they're not getting the proper power level. So anyway, uh, we dug in, and what we found out was that uh, uh, our beam counters had looked at the um, output amplifiers, VHF amplifiers. The amplifiers had a, a 10 microfarad capacitor. Uh, they had a 0.1 microfarad capacitor and a 005 microfarad capacitor, all in parallel. And they figured that the tolerance of of those uh, 10 microfarads was enough that the other capacitors didn't add any value. What they didn't realize was that there's series inductance in each of the capacitors, and they were bypassing the ground uh, different frequency ranges. The 10 microfarad electrolytic was bypassing low frequency stuff to uh, keep noise and oscillation out of there. The 0.1 microfarad was effective basically in the HF region, and uh, the 005 microfarad was was bypassing uh, VHF. So when they took out the uh, the two lower value capacitors, the darn thing was oscillating at VHF because the uh, electrolytic capacitor had such high internal inductance 
that it looked like a choke in the collector circuit of the amplifier. And instead of having a, uh, a two meter 50 watt uh, amplifier, we had a, uh, a, a VHF oscillator oscillating all over the place unreliably. <laughs> so the moral of the story is, Incur the extra cost that the designers wanted by having the capacitors on there to keep the darn things stable. Um, that that same kind of a thing happened back when I was in my early early uh, engineering days at Kodak and uh, making small circuits and for cameras and measurement equipment and so on. Same kind of thing. Capacitors would come off and hey, it works without the capacitor. Let's reduce the cost of the overall. Um, cost of goods sold, and that's not a very good thing to do, of course. John, do you have a comment? Uh, yes, um, I thought I'd ask us here, since we were on grounding uh, a few minutes ago. I've got a um, one of the Ensemble RX2 receivers uh, on my workbench here, and I want to uh, put it in a little enclosure made from PCB, double-sided PCB, uh, material and um, I've, I've cut all the bits and I'm about to solder them together. One of my uh, my question is um, uh, because of the way that grounding is organised on the uh, ensemble board, um, how do I ground? Uh, what, to what do I ground the case to to eliminate hash and uh, stuff that might be floating around in the shack? That's a, that's a great question. I don't know if I have the right answer. The one thing that I would do, not knowing or not uh, um, having it stated in the examples, that I would see, first of all, are the are the grounds on each of the, the digital side and the RF side, for clarity of sake, um, are those each isolated as we indeed say they are? And if uh, that's indeed the case, then probably you would want to... Uh, Joe, I'm going to get your opinion on this. The whole idea is to keep the uh, the digital stuff from talking to uh, to the analog side. Uh, that's connected to the USB port, which goes over to the computer. So that's the thing you want to keep isolated. And then you want to maintain a good RF connection to the case to keep all the RF stuff at the, uh, the right uh, potential. One way of, of mounting the board uh, so that the, um, uh, the, the digital grounds, the ones associated with the USB, are isolated is to use uh, ceramic or plastic uh, spacers to, so that the hardware that mounts the, uh, the board to the chassis uh, doesn't short to the chassis. You can also use nylon hardware, uh, but you want to you have a good solid connection from the uh, the RF portion, the right-hand side of the portion, to uh, to your to your case. Yeah, this is Terry. I just I have mine uh, on the bench. I'm literally in wiring uh, uh, winding inductors as I listen to the talk. I just checked, and uh, at least three of the four screws, the actual screw hole on the printed circuit board is isolated isolated from both the grounds, the USB one included. Um, if you use the nylon washers that, that um, Tony provides and the, the hardware that Tony provides, the board should be completely isolated from any metal. What I would do is what Joe is suggesting. I would actually run a, 
a wire or solder along one of the, at least one of the screws for the ground for the RF part so that you're getting a good uh, ground connection from the metal box or the, the PC board box to the RF part of the soft rock, but make sure you make sure uh, make sure you keep the uh, USB ground isolated. Okay, so uh, what I'm getting here is uh, that the uh, BNC connector that um, uh, is the antenna in on the soft rock. Uh, the, the the shell of that is uh, uh, grounded internally to uh, some place on the board. Um, I'm wondering if I can just simply ground that uh, BNC shell uh, to my um, to my external earth. Uh. Yeah, I think that depends on if you put in the antenna ground jumper or not. Um, and Joe and um George could probably address that a little better. There, there is no recommendation, hard and fast, for adding that ground. That, you'll see that on the lower schematic in the left-hand side near bubble number one, the transformer T2. That's where the antenna plugs into. So what we're talking about, John, is that particular, um, uh, that, uh, that, that BNC connector. If you do nothing, if you don't have that connect, if you don't have the ground connection in, the ground of the BNC shell goes to the other side of the transformer and doesn't go anywhere else and your signal gets transferred over to the input uh, of the, the of that uh, that first MUX switch in bubble number two. If however you put the ground in as that ground option indicates for the shell to the ground which is the ground um, the, I think the notes that Robbie has there says there's there should be no difference you can do it it's a builder's choice um, I actually do not have it just for the sake on mine, just to, for the sake of uh, um, perhaps isolating, isolating and keeping the signals a little bit more uh, isolated. I've um, got all that. I, I um, found the point you were talking about, George. Um, just as an aside, I guess uh, you guys and and lady have caught up with the um, amendment to the. Uh, the binocular um, uh, toroid at that um, RF endpoint and the uh, lead exchange. Um, I don't know if you know about that. I do not know what you're referring to, John. Can you explain it? Uh, yes. Um, a very smart guy um, found that the leads were actually, um, the leads that were to go to the right points were actually crossed over on that ballon. Um, and uh, there was some signal degradation and uh, for some uh, who were building the kit the uh, output was a lot noisier than it should have been and you could see this reflected on the um, uh, uh, the, the software uh, the computer software interface um, like um, uh, yeah I, I can't remember the name of the one I'm using um, and uh, the, I'll, I'll, I'll post a, um, a link to the corrections. Uh, apparently, depending on what uh, ensemble you have, um, there are different uh, uh, transformers involved. Okay, that's good. Um, I, I had not seen that, and I would very much enjoy uh, 
your your post of that uh, that information. I'll get it onto our web page here too. And frankly, I'm struggling with one or two boards that I'm debugging for some friends, and that might be some of the problem. I don't know. Okay, we're going to wrap it up here for this evening. I think that going through this circuit and talking about various approaches to troubleshooting this particular board are very common and can be applied to many other kinds of circuits that we have on the bench. We bring up topics of, you know, the solder leads being connected, ground connections being um, present or not present. Um, there's, I think I'd like to talk, um, in fact, an entire session perhaps about using the computer's USB port and getting your sound card working properly. That sometimes is problematic. And so many of our projects these days actually use the computer USB port for control. And an increasing number are using the sound port for inputting audio data that either is uh, modulation or um, encoded control. And getting that set up is not always the straightforward thing that you might have uh, to do, especially with the different kinds of computers that we have, the different operating systems, the different versions of things, and so on. And Getting it straight is, is kind of an important part. If you, if you don't get it straight, you're probably just going to throw the thing in a corner of your bench and forget about it for a while. That that happens to me um, from time to time. So we'll, we'll take at least one more session to, dis, uh, to go through this uh, circuit. And I hope that uh, everybody is enjoying this, um, this discussion. And please let us know. If this has put you to sleep, that's good to know as well. But maybe this is an opportunity for you to uh, to go get yourself uh, an Ensemble RX2 kit. Now that they are available, you might be able to even have the kit present before next week's session. And you can start building, as much as Terry is doing almost as we do it live, you'll be able to uh, benefit from some of these comments that we're making and have your circuit work, maybe not the first time, but very close to the first time that you apply power. Uh, Joe, do you want to kind of wrap us up for this evening? Yeah, okay. I was just going to say, John, earlier earlier comment was about the microscope, and I just wanted to announce uh, a couple of weeks ago I found a Celestron digital microscope uh, system for under $45 at uh, PJ's, and that's uh, all digital, so it, pro it projects it on the uh, on your monitor. So if you have a nice big monitor, you have a digital, a digital microscope that projects the image. That's a, that's amazing. Could you post either here in this uh, in the text session section of this uh, session tonight, or maybe on the chat with the designers email? Give, give us a uh, a link for that. That sounds quite attractive. Um, you bet. Um, oh, good. Any other questions before Joe wraps it up? Yeah, Pete, go yeah, ahead. Pete. Yeah, I have a couple points here. First of all. Uh, I have a 6.2 and 6.3 um, Tony Parks kit, and what I did is ground the RF to the cabinet and isolate the USB line. Uh, until somebody buys me a spectrum analyzer, I think this is a great solution, so I'm going to go with it. The other thing to keep in mind on troubleshooting is that Google is your friend. And if you have a problem with something, always I Google it because inevitably someone else, usually lots of people, have run into the same problem and somebody with a lot more time, expertise and whatever has solved it. For instance, with the uh, RXTX, you may have a problem when you first set it up of it always comes up with the PTT engaged 
Well, this turns out to be a known but not very well documented point of configuration of the software, but I'm sure you could go round and round in circles trying to find it in hardware. Now, the important thing, when I was service manager of a ham radio store, uh, the thing that uh, I kept in mind, and we're going back into the uh, 1980 time frame here, but you have to be able to figure out when you are doing your tests if a circuit works or not. You have to realize when you are making a test on a chip, on a transistor, or anything, you have to think about, do I understand what the results are going to be from this test? Do I understand if this, if, if this test will determine if this unit is working correctly or not working correctly? And if you can't make a differential diagnosis of that type, your testing is going to be sending you around in circles. Now, one of the problems people make is assuming things. And if you're troubleshooting, especially something that you don't know has worked in your hands before, your assumptions are going to be wrong a lot of the times. <clears throat> um, I have come up with, I bought second-hand equipment most of my life. A few months ago, I had a 10-tech Paragon on the bench. It had one missing resistor from the factory and one missing wire from the factory and a couple of other defective uh, unrelated components as well, so you have to do things step by step. But unless you spend time analyzing the circuit and figuring out how it works, you would never catch up with one of these things because you don't know that there's a wire missing by looking at it or even by tracing it. Uh, it may it w wasn't even clearly done on the schematic, which is a whole different part of problems. Uh, I had a transmitter a few weeks ago. Uh, somebody had replaced a 75 picofarad variable cap with a 470 picofarad variable cap. So, of course, it doesn't tune, even though the capacitor is fine and the rest of the circuit's fine. And finally, with the passing of the inventor of the 555 chip uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I was thinking of a ham radio magazine kit that uh, the magazine came out with that had a 555 uh, to build a code practice oscillator. And I built this thing up many years after it was first uh, produced, and it didn't work. And I went round and round in circles for hours with this thing with about seven components on it. Why doesn't it work? And I took out the 555, and I put it in another something or, uh, something or other, and that worked, and I put it back. It didn't work. Everything checked out. All the parts checked out. The wiring checked. Everything. And then eventually I got to the data sheets, and oops, at some point in the history of the 555, there was a slight change in the pinout of the chip, and it was something, I don't remember exactly, but it was something to the effect of what was an NC is now a control input. And this particular circuit happened to use that pinout, and therefore this little CPO with its very few parts did not work. So the uh, point of that is uh, you have to understand or make every effort to understand as well as you can what you're doing, and I'm done. No, uh, and a mouthful of good information there, Pete. Thanks an awful lot. I think the main the main one is as you just summarized, it underscores the uh, our point up above when we started was that uh, collect and understand the circuit as how it is supposed to work, the theory of operation, such that you can identify when it works and when it's not working. Good stuff. Thanks. Okay, Joe, why don't you kind of take it away? Uh, thank you all for uh, uh, listening tonight and participating. We, uh, we tried to go over some high points of troubleshooting. 
uh, getting getting your head around uh, the issues involved in troubleshooting, talking a bit about uh, the types of uh, documentation you need, the importance of having good and complete documentation, um, describing the types of test equipment that are useful for uh, doing troubleshooting, and um, highlighted some of the uh, the, the good points of real good stuff, but um, the fact that uh, even minimal test equipment can, can often uh, do a good job if you know what's about you. Uh, trying to, uh, in doing troubleshooting, trying to isolate um, within what you're working on between what does and what doesn't work. And as Pete just pointed out, uh, determining what does uh, it work or doesn't work really mean. You have to get that straight. And uh, we gave some examples in the um, RX Ensemble, Soft Rock Ensemble receiver, of some of the circuits in there. And George, based on his long experience with uh, troubleshooting this thing, had some excellent points about some some uh, tips, some um, particular issues that uh, come about in um, circuits like this, particularly surface mounts. And, uh, and in these circuits, some... Um, things based on his experience that uh, make troubleshooting easier. And, uh, and then um, Terry chimed in with some very excellent uh, points about what to look for on the SI570 chip um, to be sure that you have it connected properly. Um, and then we've had uh, inputs from another of other, a number of other folks who've uh, uh, shared their experiences with us to give um, good troubleshooting tips to, uh, to help us along the way in troubleshooting. Um, thank you all, and um, back to George for um, uh, tying the ribbons on this. All right, thanks a lot, Joe. Good, uh, good summary, and a reminder that um, unless we hear otherwise, um, we would like to hear from you, of course, about this. We'd like to be continuing this um, for one more session next week, in order to go through the rest of the circuit. We think there are some really good points to be brought out. Um, by the rest of the uh, going through the rest of the circuit, the, the bandpass filters and the amplifiers, and then of course connection to the computer. So if those areas interest you at all, that's what we're planning on uh, approaching uh, next week. Right after this show here, I'm going to activate the links for our first two chat with the designer uh, kits in the chat with the designer projects section. You'll see that on our main page. Uh, you'll see the two kits that are, are now um, available to be ordered, if you wish. And that is, of course, the N2CX Choke Ballon and the Retro SWR Meter. So if those projects kind of interested you, um, click on the links. You'll see the summary I extracted from our discussions uh, several weeks ago about them. And... Um, We'll have the parts that will allow you to do something very similar to what we did there and uh, in those evening projects. And they're, they're easy projects, and you should be able to get to, uh, to them uh, um, and enjoy them pretty, pretty nicely. We'll soon have other parts, other, um, uh, the other projects available in the same manner. But all of these uh, Chat with a Designer projects are limited-run parts kits. Uh, we're not doing it like forever. And that's why we're letting um, you folks here on Chat with the Designers know about it first. And I'm going to post onto the on the CWTD uh, list that um, of its availability. I'm not going to make a general 
announcement on other lists until such time as uh, everybody here has had their, their fill. But trust me, there's not a lot of kits to go around, and so if you're interested, go for it. But please, if you're not going to build it, don't you know, don't don't order it and let somebody else have uh, uh, partake in the fun. Okay, um, I don't see any other lights come on for questions, so really glad you joined us here. Um, well, thank you all again and very much for uh, joining us here this evening, and we'll talk to you next week on Chat with the Designer. This is George N2APV and Joe N2CX saying good night all. Thank you.